I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 6, 2018. Coming up, it's the endless stream of tailpipes on the LA freeway which causes that unsightly smog, nagging cough, and chronic respiratory problems, right? Well, perhaps not anymore. A new scientific study helps build the case that the major culprit may now be purchases made at the corner drugstore or hardware store. I speak with Dr. Brian McDonald of NOAA about perhaps changing tactics for the next stage in the human racist campaign to keep the air clean and healthy in both the indoor and outdoor environments of the urban areas many of us call home. Let's begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. First, an invitation. STEM is an acronym used in education for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. If you or your children want to discover more about STEM, this Saturday, the organization Open World Learning is extending an invitation to all K-12 students and their families. Come out for an afternoon of fun and learning to the St. Cajeta Center on the Auraria campus at Metro State University. Connect with STEM professionals and learn about awesome STEM careers and opportunities here in Colorado. There will be robots to play with, virtual reality, 3D printers, and other high-tech gadgets to try out. This event is free and all are welcome to attend. Free parking in the 7th Street garage and public transit costs will be reimbursed with a receipt. Discover STEM, explore, engage, connect. This Saturday, March 10th, 1 to 3 p.m. at the Cahatis Center on the Aurora campus in Denver. Thanks to a warming climate, the average snowpack in the western states has dropped by up to 30% since 1915. That's according to a study published recently in the journal NPJ Climate and Atmospheric Science. To get a sense of just how large that decline is, consider this. The water in the lost snowpack is comparable in volume to Lake Mead. With a capacity of 9.3 trillion gallons, Mead is the West's largest human-made reservoir. The declining snowpack was observed across all months and all western states, but the drop was most pronounced in the spring when snowpack starts to melt out. It's a bigger decline than expected, says Philip Mote of Oregon State University, the lead scientist. This is important because the snowpack that forms in the mountains during the wet, cold season is itself like a gargantuan water storage reservoir. During the warmer months, snowmelt has traditionally provided water to thirsty cities, farmers, and industries downstream. But with warm, spring-like weather arriving ever earlier thanks to climate change, more precipitation is falling as rain than in the past. And snow is melting out earlier. The upshot? Less water running downstream from nature's own snowpack reservoir during the dry summer and fall months, just when consumers have very significant needs. Unfortunately, building more reservoirs is not the answer. New reservoirs just could not be built fast enough to offset the loss of snowpack. So in Moat's view, we just have to do a better job of managing what we have. 
That was Tom Yulsman, director of the University of Colorado's Center for Environmental Journalism. His story about the snowpack declines can be found at his Discover Magazine blog. And in a related story, a recent scientific study confirms that sneaking suspicion that spring is arriving earlier than before. A study conducted by the University of California, Davis, and published in Nature's online journal Scientific Reports indicates that throughout the Northern Hemisphere, spring arrives measurably earlier than it did even a decade ago. The scientific study of variations in seasons is known as phenology. That's P-H-E-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Phenology includes observing the timing of such phenomenon as birds migrating, flowers blooming, amphibians calling, and the emergence of leaves. The phenology study from UC Davis analyzed 743 previously published estimates of the rate of springtime advances made over an 86-year period throughout the Northern Hemisphere. It determined the amount by which spring comes early is very highly correlated to how far north it is. Uh, compared to a decade ago, around here, by the 40th parallel, four days earlier is common. The further south, the effect is less. Up in the Arctic, the advance of spring can be as much as 16 days earlier. A lead author of the study, Eric Post of UC Davis, has expressed concern about the effects on migratory animals, notably birds. If birds begin a springtime migration back to their breeding ground up north, uh, they may find that spring is already well underway by the time they arrive. As such, the birds have shown up quite late for dinner, for the plants and insects that they feast upon experienced a significantly earlier spring and have already emerged and matured before the birds have even arrived. Sunny day cruise control. A couple trees of smooth road. The weather changed a little rain. A hidden curve of flattened brain. That is a tune I yell at traffic by Leo Kotke. Uh, we often yell at traffic uh, for inconveniencing us and blame it for uh, pollution problems, but we may have some new culprits. Mankind struggles with his own inventions in order to keep the air breathable. Uh, in a first wave, the ability to keep tens of thousands of urban households warm through burning first wood and then coal in Victorian English cities became, well, unsustainable. Heating technology changed, though perhaps not fast enough. A killer fog descended upon London in 1952, sufficiently deadline to move a conservative and war-hardened Winston Churchill to take decisive action. More recently, the freedom and convenience of personal automotive technology 
has made the city of Los Angeles just as well known for the L.A. freeway and its smog as for its celebrities. It might be fair to say a progressive California state legislature dealt with the issue more proactively through automotive regulation and the encouragement of cleaner technology. And yet we may be moving into a new phase of this struggle. And to discuss the latest scientific evidence for that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Brian McDonald, uh, working with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He just recently returned from talking about some experiments that he had set up in the City of Angels. Dr. Brian McDonald, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you for having me here. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit about the article that just came out. I guess this is the February 15th uh, issue of the Science Journal of the American Association of the Advancement of Science. Tell me about the conclusions of that paper that you were an author of. Sure. So the main punchline of the study is that over time, when you look at air quality measurements in Los Angeles that go over five to six decades, you really see a sharp decrease in the emissions of what's called volatile organic compounds, or VOCs, that contribute to both ground-level ozone and PM2.5, pretty much the building blocks of smog. So as cars have gotten cleaner, we're starting to see uh, emerging sources things like everyday chemical products become relatively more important. And so these are things like personal care products, cleaning products, paints, pesticides, and other coatings and adhesive-related products. Let's talk a little bit about what exactly is a, a volatile organic compound. I know that uh, when my, uh, my wife picked out some paint recently to help paint the inside of her house, uh, she specifically looked for something called a low VOC paint. And so volatile, uh, I, I believe, just talks about the ability to evaporate. And uh, I, organic compound, I think, has a reasonable, understandable idea. But it, something like water seems to be organic and evaporates. Yet I don't know if water would be considered a volatile organic compound. What makes something that? Yeah, so a volatile organic compound specifically needs carbon and hydrogen in it. And so water doesn't have a carbon atom in it. And why VOCs are added to a variety of chemical products are for a variety of reasons. One is to carry other ingredients and act as a solvent. So if you apply uh, a paint to the wall, you're smelling those VOCs that, that come off that paint and then leave behind the, the pigment. Uh, another reason VOCs are put into a variety of chemical products, uh, a lot of times they're the fragrances. Those are the things that are, you're intended to smell. So there's a variety of reasons why VOCs are used in everyday products. And so, you know, the key points are volatile just means that these are chemicals that uh, have a propensity to get into the air. And then the organic compound piece is that it's got a hydrogen and carbon backbone. And then I understand that they are not directly the thing that pollutes. I mean, we often enjoy uh, the, the smells that are released, although if perhaps we're caught in the small copy room with a colleague who wears just a little bit too cologne, too much cologne, maybe not. But uh, I guess it's about an interaction with something called secondary organic aerosols. Can you talk about how those compounds then go on to form the things that uh, do us harm? Sure. That's a really good question. So... Uh, not only do VOCs get emitted, but what the study really looks at is 
once they get into the atmosphere in the presence of sunlight, as well as with other ingredients that contribute to, to smog, such as nitrogen oxides or NOx, they can undergo a cascade of chemical reactions and form uh, ozone molecules, as well as turn into products that are chemical, um, chemicals that oxidize in the atmosphere and potentially can start sticking to each other and form fine particles or, or stick to existing particles. I heard you mention ozone there. I know that when we worry about uh, uh, greenhouse effects, we're worried about there not being enough ozone. We're worried about destroying the ozone layer. Yet, I guess when it's closer to us, ozone can be a problem. Yeah, so in general, ozone in the stratosphere or the very upper levels of the Earth's atmosphere is a good thing. So the, you know, um, chlorofluorocarbons were, were depleting the stratospheric ozone layer, and there were efforts under the Montreal Protocol to get rid of these CFCs to, to improve that. However, ozone down at the surface in the one kilometers uh, closest to the Earth's surface, which is the air that we generally breathe, that's not necessarily a good thing. It can impact our health. It's a respiratory irritant. I seem to recall I had a relative, I, I won't name him on the air, uh, who, when he was at home smoking uh, before his wife might come back home, he wanted to hide the evidence. And I think he had some sort of ozone spray that he would spray that would cause, uh, I guess, whatever was in the air to particulate and fall out. Uh, is that kind of solution reasonable or does that just make it worse? Yeah, so, you know, m this study is really focused on the outdoor air quality dimension mm -hmm. as well as the indoor exposure to, to VOCs. Uh, but this question about whether ozone generators uh, can remove the, the VOCs, you know, that, that process has also been shown can, can form fine particles indoors. So, so you may remove the VOCs, but you can form other oxidation products like the fine particles. And so, so while this study really focused on, the, on the, the outdoor chemistry, there's also chemistry that goes on in the indoor environment. And the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation has been funding a lot of research to try and understand that indoor environmental chemistry. Well, let's move then to discussion about uh, the outdoor. Uh, you know, the air outdoor, well, it's, it's especially big. And uh, in a place like the city of Los Angeles, well, there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, I'd like to get into so the science of what you did. Uh, how exactly does one gather evidence uh, to raise the case uh, for what is the cause of air pollution in an inactive urban environment? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in this study, we had to pull together lots of pieces of evidence. So one thing we started with was looking at chemical and economic manufacturing statistics to see how much chemical products are manufactured in the U.S. Not only that, we also had to figure out, well, how many VOCs are contained when, within these products. And it turns out the California Air Resources Board you know, they do regulate these consumer products for their potential impact on air pollution. So they have a pretty extensive reporting program from the industry on what chemicals are in there. So the other thing we looked at was, well, you use a chemical product, but the amount that gets into the air can really depend on how you use it and what type of product it is. For example, a paint, when you put it on the wall, a lot of it, most of it will get into the air. But if you're using hand soap, a lot of that may go down the drain. And so we looked at laboratory testing data that indoor air quality researchers have been doing to see, for given use, how much of that gets into the air. 
And then the last piece we looked at was air quality measurements that were made in Los Angeles as part of this big NOAA uh, field campaign in 2010 called the California Nexus Study. And so over 100 scientists came down to Los Angeles in 2010 and made some uh, sophisticated scientific measurements of, of the air using some of the most advanced instrumentation at that time. So we looked for this chemical fingerprint of, of consumer products, other chemical products, along with vehicles, and it sort of matched what we were being able to, to measure in the outdoor air. And then the last component was indoor air quality researchers have been measuring the indoor environment across thousands of buildings around the world, so including the U.S., Europe, uh, Japan, other industrialized countries. And so our hypothesis was, if these chemical products are an important source of emissions, and since a lot of their uses are indoors, like from personal care product use or cleaning product use, then we should see their concentrations indoors. And in fact, we did. And so we found that you know, the, the VOCs that are emitted from these products were roughly seven times higher than in the outdoor air, giving us some strong evidence that, yes, this is an important source. But part of that reason is because cars really have gotten a lot cleaner over time. And so in some ways, perhaps the result of your report, actually some good news in that the, the main culprit has been taken down, and now that there's a secondary culprit, uh, that's the biggest culprit standing, but it perhaps is uh, less ominous than what was the case in our past or probably is still the case now in places like Seoul, Korea, or many urban centers in China where uh, classic vehicle-based emissions cause dangerous pollution. Yeah, we think this is a, a good news story here that, that regulations by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and California Air Resources Board have been really effective at making cars cleaner. And so this is a progression towards, you know, some of the traditional sources of, of air pollution are uh, industry and transportation. But the results of this study would suggest that we're reaching a tipping point where the sources of air pollution are more diverse. I do want to point out that transportation is still an important source of air pollution. It's not that it's not anymore. The main culprit has not been defeated yet here. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's still, you know, even in our study, uh, engines are still roughly half of the petrochemical VOCs that are emitted in Los Angeles. And, and combustion still emits uh, nitrogen oxides or NOx, which also contribute to, to smog. And, of course, there's also carbon dioxide emissions that are emitted. So uh, many of the headlines that I saw regarding your article talked about how the finding of these new culprits was surprising. And perhaps it is surprising for the person that is reading that headline at the moment. But if, I would imagine that you and the team of scientists that you worked with were looking for this when you, when you decided to go and do the air quality studies. So give us a little hint into um, how uh, a climate scientist decides to look for a new culprit? I mean, do you do some theoretical models? Do you discuss things first at conferences? Or does someone have to be a maverick standing alone making a, an unwelcome claim for a while? So I would say that, like the broader public, uh, scientists have for a long time, when we look at urban air pollution problems, you know, the main main source we also think about is transportation. And part of that reason is because 
a lot of the VOCs that have been measured in the urban atmosphere, you know, they tend to be found in fossil fuels like gasoline and diesel. And so we generally assume that, yes, transportation was the main source of VOCs and other uh, contaminants that contribute to air pollution. What's new in this study is because the chemical instrumentation has advanced where we can measure a lot more compounds, we can start seeing things we couldn't see 20, 30 years ago or even 10 years ago. And with this advanced instrumentation, we started seeing some chemicals and markers in the atmosphere that didn't make sense to us, that couldn't be explained by just transportation emissions alone. One example is ethanol. So, of course, ethanol is in in beer, but ethanol is also 10% of gasoline fuel. And in the measurements in Los Angeles air, we just simply couldn't explain why we measure so much ethanol in the air. It was roughly five times higher than we could predict by the amount of, of gasoline fuel. But there were other compounds, things like acetone, which is pretty common in paints um, and other coating-related products, nail polish remover, isopropanol, which is in rubbing alcohol. These were all way too low just by looking at transportation emissions and comparing it with what we were measuring in the air. If you're just joining us now, this is How on Earth. We are speaking with Dr. Brian McDonald of the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences and of the Chemical Sciences Division of NOAA's Earth Systems Research. Um, talk a little bit about this instrumentation. I know, for instance, in places around here like Lyons, uh, for indoor pollution, like people are concerned about something like radon, you can buy a, a home radon detection kit. Is this the kind of thing that citizens and science enthusiasts, at least in terms of measuring indoor pollution, can can bring up a maybe not as nice and expensive as equipment that you use, but some equipment to uh, measure the pollutions in indoor places in their own locations and perhaps contribute to sort of crowdsourced scientific data gathering? Yeah, so this is a really good question that the scientific community is engaging in right now. So, you, you know, measurements that we make at CU and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, we're using really uh, high-tech, expensive instrumentation where you really do need uh, scientific experts like my colleague, Dr. Jessica Gilman, who made a lot of these these measurements, versus uh, less expensive but um, more easily deployed uh, 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 air quality sensors. And so there's a lot of questions right now on uh, the utility of these uh, less expensive sensors and how you can get useful air quality information out of that. And I still think this that's an ongoing debate right now between the scientific community about how we can use these low-cost sensors to, to be very useful for scientists in their studies. So questions aren't answered yet. <laughs> Thank you. I understand, though, on a, a more promising note, uh, the trip to Los Angeles that you just returned from yesterday, we were speaking in the studio just before this interview, uh, you have found that there are other institutions that are already actively in, uh, active in, and interested in continuing to gather more data. Tell us a little bit more, more about how you've made one study, you've created additional data to make a case, but science progresses slowly, and of course you need to build more data. Tell us about how you're recruiting other institutions and trying to get other people involved in, in this. Sure. I would say, you know, not necessarily need to recruit, but scientists are always interested in discovering new knowledge. And I think part of the excitement in the community right now is because of the advancement 
of the chemical instrumentation. You know, this study was using air quality measurements that were made in 2010. The instrumentation have made another leap in advances since then, so that if we made measurements in 2019, 2020, we might see even more stuff in the atmosphere. And so I think there's an excitement there of deploying these new new instruments and toys out in the field to advance our understanding of air pollution. And one of those reasons is because because regulations have been very effective at controlling some of the traditional sources, the other sources are, are, are becoming more important, and those, those chemicals that are in them are not necessarily the same as those that are in transportation. So there's a lot of excitement because of you know, the new questions that can be explored. And we just have about another minute left. I just want to point out, we have had uh, your uh, co-author, Jessica Gilman, on How on Earth recently, and I, I encourage you to check the How on Earth radio archives if you'd like to catch that interview. But I'd like to put the question to you, uh, uh, Dr. Brian McDonald. Um, pe- should people be concerned? Is there actionable items that, uh, that the public can take from your report? People concerned about what particular type of things that they buy at the drugstore or the hardware store? Uh, and is there actions that they can take to help uh, deal with the problem? Yeah, so I have a couple suggestions for the the average consumer. Both the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and California Air Resources Board have some really nice resources on VOCs from consumer products and how they may impact air pollution. The other suggestion is I know early, on an earlier segment that uh, Professor Shelley Miller uh, was on How on Earth, and she had a lot of nice suggestions, too. So a couple main things that, that the California Air Resources Board recommends is when you're trying to get a task done, try to use as little uh, chemical product cleaning agent as possible to get the job done. A second uh, that, that Shelley Miller had recommended was use fragrance-free uh, alternatives if they're available. All right. I want to thank you. That was Dr. Brian McDonald a lead author of a research article just published in the February 15th issue of the Science Journal of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Chip Granditz. Additional contributions by Susan Moran and Tom Yulsman. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music today from Leo Kotke. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz.